Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Hey there. I hope you caught last week's show. I was telling you then about this NIH grant. It's now in its sixth year. And after receiving a good review score last year and getting renewed for another five years, how the NIH just terminated that grant under what seems now to be directions from President Donald Trump. Now, I was telling you about an article written by Meredith Wadman and John Cohen last week. This is a commentary that was published in the April 30, 2020 issue of the prestigious journal called Science. Why did the NIH defund this project while it's still going on? Well, one of the virologists on this defunded project is a Chinese scientist who works at the Institute of Virology in Wuhan, China, which according to some could be the potential source of this novel coronavirus known as SARS-CoV-2. Well, last week I mentioned a research article published in the March 17, 2020 issue of Nature Medicine, which is also a very respected journal. And now I've had time to look at this article, and I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it. The title of the paper is The Proximal Origin of SARS-CoV-2. And basically what they did is they examined the RNA genome of this coronavirus And they looked at the protein that it encodes in order to better understand its origin and its evolution. In this paper, they conclude that the virus is natural. It doesn't have the characteristics of something that was manipulated in a laboratory. Now, they describe the protein we have in our body that the virus actually latches onto and uses to enter our cells. This protein is called ACE2, A-C-E-2. And that stands for angiotensin-converting enzyme 2. And this protein is present in a lot of our tissues, but most notably in our lungs, which is why we have to wear these darn masks all the time. And apparently this newer COVID-19 strain has a higher affinity for the ACE2 receptor than the SARS virus that killed so many people back in 2002 and 2003 and 2004. This new coronavirus we're dealing with now can bind to our ACE2 receptor 10 to 20 times stronger than the SARS virus did back then. But not only is this new virus binding to our ACE2 receptors especially strong, but these receptors were reported back in 2005 to actually protect our lungs from damage. And when the virus latches onto them, they can't protect us as well which is one of the problems. Now, this virus produces spikes in its outer wall that grab onto our ACE2 receptor. And when these authors studied these spikes, they found that they do contain a few extra amino acids that don't always occur in other coronaviruses like SARS. These few amino acids apparently create a site in the protein for an enzyme called furin to cut it. 
furin, F-U-R-I-N. And furin is made in our own cells. And what it does is that it cleaves proteins. And apparently, viruses that have this ability to be cut by furin are often more easily transmissible between people. So that's a bad thing. Also, this insertion creates places where sugar molecules could be fastened to the spike protein, creating a shield. It's called the mucin shield, and that protects the virus from our immune system. So all this stuff coming together kind of sounds like the perfect storm, don't you think? So what is it about all this that makes researchers think that this perfect storm wasn't concocted by some evil scientist in a laboratory. Well, first of all, these features do exist naturally. They find natural viruses in bats and these odd-looking animals called the pangolin. Pangolins are mammals that kind of look like an anteater with scales. It's not unusual for different strains of viruses to swap genes, so that could be where this coronavirus picked up these features. They weren't invented out of the blue, and they couldn't have been put there ahead of time because researchers didn't even know about these natural sequences in pangolins until after this novel coronavirus became a problem just this year. It's that mucin shield made by sugar molecules that protects the virus from attack by the host immune system, our immune system. It's not thought that this is an artificial trait, Because if this feature was inserted in the lab by researchers, they would have done that using tissue culture of cells grown on a Petri dish. But it turns out that when you do tissue culture of cells, those cells don't have our immune system. Our immune system's not really active in those kind of cells. So how could such a trait arise by selection in the lab when the immune system was not even operating in those cells? Also, the authors discuss how coronaviruses are typically manipulated in the lab and how this novel virus just doesn't have those characteristics. It looks like it truly evolved naturally, either in bats or those pangolins or some other animal, or those features evolved in humans after the virus started infecting us. So that's about that Nature Medicine paper. Now, in spite of this research, there is so much confusion at the White House about this issue. They just don't seem to get the difference between this novel coronavirus being the result of genetic engineering and somehow being released to the environment versus the virus being collected from nature, maybe, and then stored in the lab at which maybe at one point it did escape to the environment, versus the virus somehow emerging naturally in the city of Wuhan, either in the meat market there or through people who were just naturally infected with the virus. Don't forget, last week I told you about this same NIH project had shown that something like 3% of the people who live around bat caves in Asia do produce the antibodies to bat viruses, which means there can be exposure from bats directly to people. So there's these three scenarios, and the White House just doesn't seem to be able to keep them straight in their head. They just can't seem to consistently distinguish between these three scenarios. The natural virus escaping from the Institute of Virology versus a bioengineered virus somehow escaping or getting released versus natural transmission from animals like bats or pangolins to humans. 
this confusion is really apparent in an interview that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had on ABC's This Week, which was a show that was broadcast last Sunday on May 2nd, 2020. Here's a clip of this interview with Secretary of State Pompeo. It starts off with Martha Raddatz, and he's very confused about what's going on. Have a listen. Do, do you believe it was man-made or genetically modified? Look, the best experts so far seem to think it was man-made. I have no reason to disbelieve that at this point. I, I, your, your Office of the DNI says the consensus, the scientific consensus, was not man-made or genetically modified. That's right. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen their analysis. I've seen the summary that you saw that was released publicly. I have no reason to doubt that that is accurate at this okay, point. Okay, so just to be clear, you do not think it was man-made or genetically modified? I've seen what the intelligence committee has said. I have no reason to believe that they've got it wrong. <laughs> Secretary of State's very confused. Now, last week we played a clip of Trump speaking at the April 17th coronavirus task force event held at the White House and this is a clip about this topic of defunding the NIH grant that was doing research on the evolution of this viral sequence. Let's hear that clip again. Please, in the back. Thank you, Mr. President. U.S. intelligence is saying this week that the coronavirus likely came from a level four lab in Wuhan. There's also another report that the NIH under the Obama administration in 2015 gave that lab $3.7 million in a grant. Why would the U.S. give a grant like that to China? Uh, the Obama administration gave them a grant of $3.7 I've been hearing about that. Uh, and we've instructed that if any grants are going to that uh, area, we're looking at it literally about an hour ago and also early in the morning. Uh, we will end that grant very quickly. But it was granted quite a while ago. They were granted a substantial amount of money. Uh, we're going to look at it and take a look. But I understand it was a number of years ago, right? So when, you are... When did you, hear, when did you hear was the grant was made? 2015. 2015. Who was president then? I wonder. As mentioned last week, the amount of money going to the Wuhan lab is much less than that was stated in that clip you just heard. It's not $3.7 million, it's $600,000, which is still a lot of money, but it's not $3.7 million. And even though this grant has accomplished some good things, like studying coronaviruses for the last five years, publishing the first sequence of the coronavirus in January, and that sequence was used to develop the test kits that are now used to confirm the infection of us with this virus, and the research on studying the human receptor, and publishing a paper in February showing that the two medicines remdesivir and chloroquinine were two promising drugs for treating patients with the COVID-19 disease. In spite of all those accomplishments, Trump declared that he was going to end funding of this NIH grant, and sure enough, one week later, it was terminated. It will be interesting to see if EcoHealth Alliance challenges this decision in court. There's a Dr. Gerald Kush with the National Emerging Infectious Diseases Lab at Boston University who says that given this grant's relevance to understanding the current pandemic and avoiding future viral outbreaks, quote, this is a horrible precedent. It's the most counterproductive thing I could imagine, unquote. Kush, who used to work at NIH, says that he's trying to mobilize colleagues to contest the agency's decision 
He says, quote, This is cutting off your face despite your nose. It's the worst kind of thing that political interference can cause in a democracy. This science article also hints that this could end a collegial relationship between the United States and the Wuhan facility scientists that could have been useful in the future. For myself, I'm a little concerned that in the future this might inhibit scientists who want to pursue a line of research that could be unpopular with the White House. Are researchers going to hesitate asking for funding for projects that the White House doesn't like? I've had an NIH grant in the past and can tell you that researchers have to be able to schedule their activities according to the time span of the grant. Like, this is what you accomplished the first year, and here's what you need to do by the second year, etc., etc. But if researchers have to continually be looking behind their shoulder out of fear of what the president's going to think, it's not only demoralizing, but it could interfere with that flow of the project. And federal research dollars not only go to the NIH, there's the National Science Foundation, the Environmental Protection Agency, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, etc., these federal agencies all fund research done by scientists around the country. Are they all susceptible to the whims of a mercurial president? This article in Science mentions that others fear that this could be Trump's way of shifting attention away from his own lackadaisical response to the pandemic by blaming China. The article quotes Dennis Carroll, who recently retired as director of the Emerging Threats Division of U.S. Agency for International Development. He says that this is another example of, quote, a culture of attacking really critical science for cheap political gain, unquote. Now, I think this one story fits into a pattern of opposition to science that could be seen in the Trump administration. For instance, the White House did eliminate the Pandemic Response Office way back a couple years ago. They consistently cut back funding to the CDC until very recently. Trump is pushing medicinal treatments like hydroxychloroquine without their being researched thoroughly. Then there's his infamous recommendations about using disinfectants and UV light on our own bodies. Trump recently fired Rick Bright from his R&D job at the White House because he opposed the widespread use of unproven hydroxychloroquine to treat patients. Trump is encouraging states to open up their economies in opposition to CDC guidelines. The White House is suppressing a new model, predicting even greater death rates in June because of all this opening up in the states. Trump is dismissing the importance of testing and vaccines, saying that infection rates will be declining anyway. He was going to terminate the White House Coronavirus Task Force until public outrage forced him to change his mind. And now, task force scientists like Dr. Fauci are allowed to testify in front of the Republican-controlled Senate, but not the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives. And finally, Trump refuses to wear masks or practice social distancing himself. This sends the wrong message to the rest of us. Perhaps it's because he doesn't want to appear weak or vulnerable, but now several of his staff and quite a few Secret Service agents have contracted the coronavirus. When will the White House learn to listen to science? 
Now, I began this story last week with a list of numerous conspiracy theories about the origin of this coronavirus in Wuhan. And shortly afterwards, I read an opinion piece written by longtime local activist Dave Lott. And I liked the piece so much, I asked Dave Lott to read it for our show, and he agreed. So that's coming up in a minute. Now, I could tell you Dave is a board member on the Kentucky Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. That's the longtime activist group that's been around since the time of Ann Braden. Now, I do need to remind you that our primary mission here at Forward Radio 106.5 FM, it's education. So any opinions you hear on this show don't reflect on the opinions of the station, or Benchdog for that matter. But Dave Lott's opinions are hard-hitting and provocative, and they're bound to make you think. Here is Dave Lott. This is my rant for the night. Some of my friends are becoming distracted, perhaps because, like me, they are growing weary of fighting and withdrawing at the same time, sleep-deprived, trying to maintain some semblance of normalcy in a world turned upside down. We are all trying to make sense, bringing our intellect to bear on an increasingly unbearable situation. But back on distractions. Right now, I don't give a damn about the Wuhan lab, Fauci's purported deep state ties, and all the other conspiracy crap emerging from a chaotic world in which people are trying to figure out what the hell is going on and who to blame. We have a pandemic happening in which we are being attacked by criminals engaging in disaster capitalism, social monsters who are working around the clock taking advantage of mass social disorientation in order to create conditions for a fundamental reversal of all social and political gains in this country from the last century, an undermining of civil liberties and a dismantling of civil rights and all environmental and workers' protections all in the name of maintaining the power and profits of the white, male-dominated billionaire class. Talking about Wuhan doesn't deal with the disparate impact this crisis is having on communities of color around the nation who are on the path to genocide right before our eyes as they will be made the sacrificial lambs to reopen the economy. Talking about Wuhan doesn't get people incarcerated in the viral death traps of prisons, jails, and detention camps released. Talking about Wuhan doesn't help relieve the overwhelmed hospital, nursing home, and hospice staffs who are dying themselves, caring for the sick without adequate personnel or equipment. Talking about Wuhan doesn't help unhoused people shelter in place with the tools for protective hygiene like water. Talking about Wuhan doesn't help someone without food survive in quarantine in an area of food apartheid. Talking about Wuhan doesn't challenge ongoing voter suppression tactics requiring people to choose between civic participation and possible death. Talking about Wuhan doesn't help us respond to increased repression by the police state, including ICE attacks on immigrants. Talking about Wuhan doesn't defend workers in meat plants ordered back to work in viral cesspools of animal death or the unemployed threatened with losing their check if they refuse to go back into an unprotected workplace. Talking about Wuhan doesn't do a damn thing about the ongoing transfer of massive wealth to the billionaire class right in front of us in the guise of a stimulus package while people are starving and becoming spiritually weakened and demoralized. A radical analysis is critical as it provides clarity to our vision 
by getting to the root so that solutions are more visible. We need to understand the worldwide white supremacist, patriarchal, imperialist system that delivered this crisis to us, then undermined every coordinated effort to fight it in the U.S. The response to COVID-19 in the U.S. is peak stage capitalism and crisis. But while talking about Wuhan gives us fodder for social media and allows us to fixate on an easy target amidst all the chaos, conspiracy or not, it doesn't point the way forward and help us build a transformative movement so that we can come out on the other side of this disaster with a world that is more equitable and sustainable. The question at this time is not what happened in Wuhan, but why do we need the capitalist system? That was Dave Lott. Now, Dave has his own radio show talking about important local issues. It's on WLOU 104.7 FM every Saturday at 3 to 3.30. So check that out, too. Thanks a lot, Dave. Scott here. In the April 20 edition of NASA's Global Climate Change News, there were a couple of interesting articles on ice melting in Greenland and Antarctica. According to the article, ice is melting in both locations at about six times what it was melting in the 1990s. The article refers to a publication found online in Nature's March 12th edition. A team of 89 polar scientists have produced the most comprehensive study to date on the changing ice sheets. A number of surveys were combined to calculate the overall change in the mass of the ice sheets of each location and concluded that the ice was disappearing at a rate much higher than two decades ago. The conclusions seemed to match the worst-case scenario of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the potential for an extra 6.7 inches of sea level rise by 2100. IPCC projections indicate the resulting sea level could put 400 million people at risk of annual coastal flooding by the end of the century. The overall finding was that compared to the 81 billion tons per year of ice loss from both ice sheets in the 1990s, the current rate is about 475 billion tons of ice per year. Both Greenland and Antarctica have lost a combined 6.4 trillion tons of ice over the last two decades. Now these numbers can become so big to become incomprehensible, so fortunately in the same edition of the NASA Global Climate Change News, a second article was provided that does the math. A trillion tons is referred to as a gigaton. A gigaton of ice would fill 10,000 U.S. aircraft carriers. No, we don't have that many. If you have seen or go online to find images of Central Park in New York City, it is about two and a half miles long and about half a mile wide. A rectangular chunk of ice with a mass of one gigaton would be two-tenths of a mile high, almost the length of four football fields. So the ice melt of both Greenland and Antarctica would be about 475 of those rectangular chunks of ice per year. What this means is that since 1901, two-thirds of the ocean rise in global uh, sea level of about eight inches has come from melting ice, primarily from these two sources. The rest is due to the expansion of water as it is heated. This is fresh water melting into salty seas. Now we humans and the animals around us, even many of the plants that we see, like fresh water compared to salt water. 
We use salt water for gargling, for example, or even cooking. It is not our choice to drink. It is the water of choice of marine life. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's website called How Many Species Live in the Ocean, at present we do not know. Scientists estimate that 91% of the ocean species have yet to be classified and that 95% of the ocean remains unexplored. So given the size of the oceans, it is not possible to get an exact number. But what is known is that the number of species in the ocean is decreasing. The continued decline in the health of many ecosystems coupled with rising extinction rates are likely outpacing species' ability to evolve to tolerate the conditions of our rapidly changing planet. Contributing to this decline in the health of many ecosystems is the change in the salinity of the oceans due to the addition of fresh water. According to NASA's NASA Science webpage on salinity, few know that even small variations in ocean surface salinity, i.e. concentration of dissolved salts, can have dramatic effects on the water cycle and ocean circulation. Throughout Earth's history, certain processes have served to make the ocean salty. The weathering of rocks delivers minerals, including salt, into the oceans. Evaporation of ocean water and formation of sea ice both increase the salinity of the ocean. However, these salinity-raising factors are continually counterbalanced by processes that decrease salinity, such as the continuous input of fresh water from rivers, precipitation of rain and snow, and the melting of ice. Left to its own devices, the Earth could manage the melting of ice and other freshwater sources compared to sources that increase salinity of the oceans. But in the situation where you are forced out of balance, then not only does it make it difficult to get back into balance, but while doing so, species that depend on the salinity levels either adapt or become extinct. The same article goes on to point out that the oceans store more heat in the uppermost three meters than the entire atmosphere. Thus, density-controlled circulation is key to transporting heat in the ocean and maintaining Earth's climate. Excess heat associated with the increase of global temperature during the last century is being absorbed and moved by the oceans. In addition, the studies suggest that seawater is becoming fresher in high latitudes in tropical areas dominated by rain, while in subtropical high evaporation regions, water is getting saltier. Such changes in the water cycle could significantly impact not only ocean circulation, but also the climate in which we live. Here in the Kentucky Anna region, we are far from oceans and sea level rise is not of concern to us as much as coastal communities here in the U.S. and around the world. So maybe you might be inclined to take this information and write it off as not your concern. But as the effects of salinity also have effects on the climate in which we live, then it is a real concern to sit up and pay attention to the science. The planet Earth and its ecosystems are trying to tell us something important. We ignore it at our peril, even if we don't live on the coast. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. 
Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.